coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Debug mode exposes user data. Cisco's Talus Group exposes the Angler Kit. And how Microsoft exposed Conflicker with an egg hunt. Plus a great big batch of your questions, our answers, our rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 235 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on October 8th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You've got to go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir, and welcome back. Yes. How are you doing? Feeling okay? Very good. Yeah. Uh, mostly getting uh, unjet lagged. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay. What was a six hour difference for you, right? Yeah. So that's a big adjustment to make. I went to like a two hour difference, Alan, and I feel like I can tell the difference. It's <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Michael Lucas, uh, who co authored the ZFS book with me, uh, went out to Portland for a writing workshop or whatever, and he was complaining on Twitter about like the two or three hour difference. And I was yeah, like, yeah. I, f I flew over an ocean and yeah. and there were things and it do was I get, a different time of do day. Do I get any credit for being like there for like two weeks in a different time zone? Does that add any credibility to it? Because that, I feel like well, maybe. No? Not really, because okay. it just meant you had more time to adjust. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough, Alan. Well, uh, I noticed you got kind of a cool shirt on. Is that from your adventures? Uh, yes, the this is uh, the official shirt from... The Eurocon. What does it say? Was Eurocon BSD on the... Euro EuroBSDCon. Euro 2015. Yeah, very cool. I don't have so an official at, uh, shirt. Stockholm University in Sweden. It's mm. Very nice. Yeah. Somehow the Swedish weather managed to give us sunny uh, days every single day I was there. Very nice. I, I was there longer than usual. I, uh, on my last day on the road in Montana, I was hitching up my trailer and this old lady from the RV park comes up and she says, you're not going east, are you? And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going west. Good. It's real stormy east. And I was like, okay. And as we're leaving through Montana, we're, we're driving west, and the winds start just knocking us around all over the place. And it was like almost 30 degrees out. It was like 35 degrees Fahrenheit out when we left. By the time we arrived in Washington, it was 77 degrees out. It was a big <laughs> switch. It was a big drive, big transition. Uh, nothing like flying. It's, it's a, it is slow traveling, Alan. It is slow. I, I didn't realize how slow traveling it is when you're driving all of that distance. So, yeah. uh, since we've been gone for a little bit, the show kept going, and so did the news, and we have huge stories this week. Yeah, M and uh, I, I realize now that there are a bunch of stories I heard about while I was in Sweden that we didn't cover yet. So maybe <laughs> we'll have to do more. that next week. Yeah, not only that, uh, but we also have an, a ginormous roundup, too. Yes, we do. Uh, but one of them was too big for the roundup, but the, the news section was already full, so I bumped it to next week. Oh, okay. Uh, right. But it was interesting dinner conversation on last Saturday night. Oh. Uh, sitting with two of the uh, former FreeBSD security officers at dinner. And so when security news comes up, it makes very interesting I bet. conversations. Yeah, I bet it does. That's cool. Well, so should we start with uh, this Danish bank that left their server in debug mode? And, well, yes. you can probably guess what happened next. Tell us, Alan. Uh, so, yeah. Um, while at the Chaos Communication Camp uh, in Germany, a Dutch researcher was talking to some Danish hackers about the security of Danish banks, especially the fact that their HTTPS settings are really terrible. And, you know, if you run them through that uh, Quali's uh, SSL lab, they get an F. 
right? <laughs> and uh, so that, that's actually fairly normal, whatever. Um, but so when he got home, he decided to see, you know, what else he could find out about the bank's website. Uh, so we went there and decided to just look at the HTML of the login page, right? Sure. Don't really expect to find anything there. Uh, on it, he found a giant URL-encoded JavaScript comment. <laughs> he was like, what is this? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he decoded it and looked at it. And uh, I think if you open the second link and scroll down, he has a big table. Um, but basically, it had this dump of everything that was there. So it had uh, the session cookie ID, the entire contents of the cookie that the user sends to the server, uh, a bunch of other cookies and settings. Mm -hmm. uh, it revealed uh, a bunch of information about the site as well, like the fact that the bank's website is written in Microsoft ASP. Yeah, uh, it shows the pass to the files. They're running yeah. a Windows web server on their the D, D drive in a DAT folder. <laughs> yeah, just DAT. Yeah. It's like that's just a horrible name for a directory. Yeah, um, and it shows all the internal IP addresses mm. and. So that, you know, if you did manage to compromise that server, you would know where everything else on the network might be, and, you know, what the subnets are and all that. Uh, worse, while looking at the data, he realized that that data, in fact, was not his. It's like, mm. oh, that IP address, that's not my IP address, and it's not the bank's IP address. Whose IP address is it? Hmm. And he looks it up, and that's just some random Danish user. Uh, and so he says, I, I refreshed the login page, and I got a different set of data from a different customer. Hmm. And repeated that a few times and got back a different record each time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting that it wasn't his data. So that kind of means that there was like some kind of race condition or something and it was probably supposed to print the data for the session that, you know, when you're loading the page, it should be your data. But it wasn't. You're thinking maybe you're speculating that that's another user was querying their account at the same time and he got their information instead? Yeah, so basically he got the information of somebody else that was visiting the bank's website at the same time, which is probably a bug in the debug system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Because uh, you, you don't normally want to get the data from a different session when you're debugging that page. You want to see from the session you're debugging. Sure. And so, yeah, it probably just doesn't scale, right? In, in, your, in your dev system, you're probably the only person accessing right. it at once. Yeah. But uh, on the production system, you know, there's hundreds or plus uh, queries going on every second. Yeah. So then he's like, okay, so I'm getting other people's data. That's kind of scary. He also noticed that the web server was running on port 80 and the HTTPS parameter was off. So this suggests that the, they're actually just running a regular Microsoft IIS server mm -hmm. in the back end. Yeah. And then in front of that, they have some kind of you know SSL terminator or accelerator appliance. Yeah. Uh, which is fairly standard, but for banking applications, it would seem that the best practice would be to also have TLS from the Terminator back to the web server, too. Yeah, I mean, this is a bank we're talking about. Otherwise, a sysadmin on, on the network or a network admin on, you know, somewhere on there could set up a tap on a switch or whatever and would see the usernames and passwords go by in plain text. Mm -hmm. uh, also, if, if I were to, say, compromise the web application in, in the ASP, I might be able to just, you know, sniff on the network and see stuff that yeah, normally yeah. would be harder to, yeah, to do. Yeah. Although, you know, if I've compromised the web server and can change the ASP code, I could just make it log all the username and passwords to a file or send them to me somewhere else. But beside the point. Um, but yeah, so it'd be fairly easy to snoop on usernames and passwords, so they probably should have SSL all the way through. Um, 
The researcher uh, resisted the urge to just take one of the cookies he had discovered and add it to his browser and then just be logged in as mm-hmm. that customer. I bet. Although hopefully the bank will have something on their side that says, you know, if your IP addresses change is all of a sudden, how about we make you log in again? Specifically to prevent somebody from being able to just steal your cookie like that. Mm-hmm. But then again, banks are more like, well, people don't want to have to log in all the time so we like remember their card number and stuff and they just have to type in the password. So maybe they're a little looser than that. It also seems just looking at what information they were returning in the dump that if you had done a page that actually involved an HTTP post to say log in, mm-hmm. that it might have just had your username and password in plain text as well. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Uh, also, some of the other variables that they end up setting up there, like HTTP uh, SOP DB2 member and SOP queue manager, uh, indicate that this Microsoft IIS server is connected to a, an IBM ZOS server uh, with running an old DB2 database. Uh, which is, you know, <sighs> nice and classic. Pretty normal for banks, but that's yes. really old, terrible software, which really probably means that the bank is running COBOL for the back end. And uh, you know, I know that there's a reason they still teach COBOL at the school I went to, and that's because the banks hire people that know COBOL. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's uh, very true. Hmm. And so then he decided to report it to the bank. Uh, but he said, you know, easier said than done. Mm. Uh, he kind of went over their website and couldn't find an email address or any you know, responsible disclosure process or policy. Uh, so he called up the phone number. And the lady there that he spoke to didn't seem to understand and just said, you know, our technical guy will look at your findings. Uh, and when he asked for her email address so he could email the details to her, she said that wasn't possible. Hmm. Although I understand why the bank doesn't want to just get random outside emails. Yeah, to, but still. To the people that just answer the phone, right? Yeah. If, if it's technical security people, sure, they know how not to get infected. But yeah. yes, you don't want the, the random help desk people getting emails, right? So actually, if that actually is their policy, that's somewhat impressive. Yeah. Um, but he says, you know, uh, he didn't get the feeling that he was being taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he started looking on LinkedIn for their IT security personnel. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he found someone that worked in the uh, security incident response department and mailed them about the findings. And that worked. Within 24 hours, the vulnerability had been patched. Uh, then he got his response from the bank about two weeks later saying, thank you for ro- reporting a potential security vulnerability on our website. We investigated your report immediately. However, the data you saw was not real customer sessions or data, just some debug information. Our developers corrected this later that day. To which he's like, a potential vulnerability? Are you serious? The server was leaking all kinds of highly technical data. Yeah. And what about not real customer data? Are you suggesting that the bank is using test customer data on the production environment? That would be against all safeguards and best practices. And creating test cookie data in production com- in combination with an IP address and a user agent? Never seen that one before. No, that was real user data. It was just coming yeah. back as debug info. Right, so the, the bank, um, either the, IT guy, the, the, the programmer who made the mistake said, oh, don't worry, it was just debug data, it wasn't anything important. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the bank was trying to downplay the fact that they were leaking this information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, So he says the big takeaway here is that for at least two weeks, but probably a lot longer, very confidential customer data in the form of session cookies was leaked on uh, Danska Bank's website. Uh, 
With these cookies, it should have been possible to hijack internet banking accounts of their customers. Uh, they closed the security hole quickly, but are now in denial of it. Yeah. Uh, then there's an update from this morning yeah. saying, because of all the publicity this story gets, Danske Bank now admits uh, that their production server was in debug mode hmm. and that I saw information and cookies from other visitors. Mm -hmm. uh, that's quite a turn. It seems the media attention forces the bank to be honest. Yeah. Uh, they still hold that I couldn't hijack banking sessions, though. Hmm, well, but, like I said, hopefully they, you know, verify that the IP address as yeah. well as the cookie. So yeah, that that might be possible. Yeah, but if they're not doing that, it's terrible. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, it's interesting that the couple of things that jump out at me about this story that are probably really super common that we just don't hear a lot is a he struggled to tell somebody and he tried to do the right thing. And this was a bank, so it was not really in his best interest, financially, potentially, to do those things. And yet he went out of his way to track somebody down. Again, that shouldn't need, it shouldn't be that difficult. Yes, and then the seems like, we, and, you know, we talked about the same thing with Sony. It's like, you know, it kind of seems like every company needs yeah. to have a responsible disclosure yes. policy and a, a place to send the information. That seems obvious. Although, and then how you respond to it seems pretty important, too, how you handle it. There, the other option there is there are, like, CERT, the Computer Emergency Response Team, in pretty much every country. And it's kind of their job is to, to handle coordinating those disclosures. So uh, what I would suggest maybe is that if you are in this situation of not being able to contact them, you contact uh, CERT in your country or theirs, hmm. uh, and they maybe will have the proper resources to, you know, when they call up the, the bank, they will you know, have a bit more clout than you random guy at home. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're the, you know, the Danish computer emergency response team that's funded by the government uh, rather than I'm a Dutch guy that went to a hacker camp in Germany last week. Uh, but yes, uh, especially anybody that has anything to do with security should have a, a disclosure policy and some contact information. But failing that, uh, CERT might be the right place to go. Hmm. Indeed. Any and other thoughts on that, Jude? Well, you had another. You, no, I, I didn't. I interrupted you in the middle of. Talking. No, that was my thought. Was is that they uh, that they should just uh, once the once you get in, I, I got it in there. Once they once they once they've made contact with one of these people, how they handle that seems to always be really bad. Like they downplay it, yep. then and then they piss these people off, and then these people go to the media, and it's it just seems like a really avoidable formula that they keep repeating over and over again. And I would actually bet that it's way worse than we even hear about. That was really my last point. Yep. All right. Any other thoughts? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. All right. Well, then, stop right there, and I'm going to thank DigitalOcean. Boom! Sponsor of the TechSnap program. Man, am I excited to have DigitalOcean on as a TechSnap sponsor because it's perfect for our audience. They really have a great combination of an incredibly easy-to-use uh, uh, interface, really fast CPUs, fast disks, and great internet connection on a great platform. They've got free BSD. They've got Linux you can choose from. And if you use our promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. You can try out their $5 rig two months for free. For $5 a month, you'll get... Get this, 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. I love that. And you can prob you'll probably be able to get started in less than 55 seconds. Sometimes I've seen tweets as low as like 32 seconds. I think that's the record. You might get that too if you're spinning one up in their brand new data center. What's up? DigitalOcean launched their Toronto data center. You totally called yes. it. You totally called it. I totally it. called that when I got the email about taxes. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yeah, exactly. It's like, 
Britain, DigitalOcean is going to have to start charging me Canadian taxes. That probably means they are going to establish an office or a data center in Canada. Yeah. An office doesn't seem to make much sense. No, they did it. They did it. And it's awesome, and, you too. Know, with with DigitalOcean's actual headquarters, they're in New York, if I'm not mistaken. So Correct. Toronto is a close, nearby place. And it yeah. Makes sense. It's, they, say, uh, they say the uh, Canadian startup ecosystem has been booming. Uh, there's near, nearly half a million software developers throughout Canada. And we at DigitalOcean always felt lots of love for the Canadian developer community. Today, we're excited to send some love back their way. We proudly open the doors to our Canadian data center, Tor1. Uh, it's got 40 gigabit E connections, uh, fastest SSDs in their servers. Mm -hmm. It and sounds uh, very similar to the new German yeah. one. Yeah, when uh, they build it up, they seem to go big, huh? The the later generation, whereas you know their first data center was a couple of years ago, and so it doesn't have quite the same level of hardware. Oh, look at this. They're hosting events throughout October. Uh, in mm -hmm. Toronto, the 13th or the 15th. In Vancouver, that, the 20th or the 22nd. <laughs> the one in Toronto is while well, I'm uh, getting ready to go to San Francisco. <laughs> Dang, that is neat, though. Yeah. That is really cool. So they say uh, DigitalOcean is committed to upholding the highest standards in privacy and security, and Tor1 enables us to extend those protections to our customers. Customers. It's, it's also very handy if you're a Canadian company and uh, have either the desire or the legal requirement to keep your data on Canadian soil. Yeah, so DigitalOcean is a great way to go to do one-click deployment of applications with a simple intuitive control panel with a great API to allow you to replicate the functionality of that control panel at your own scale. And they have a bunch of great apps you can already take advantage of. So remember the promo code SNAPOcean. You'll spin up your own free BSD or Linux rig over there and uh, just try it out for, for two months. You can do it absolutely free with the promo code SNAPOcean. No credit card required either. It's really a cool system. And uh, really neat to see them opening up their data center in uh, Toronto. Congratulations, DigitalOcean. That's pretty neat. Okay, Alan, our next story is a big one. Uh, it's from, I guess, the Talos Group, which is part of Cisco, right? Is yes, that, uh, okay. so Talos is Talos. Uh, Talos is the uh, the arm Cisco created uh, when they bought Plan A B, Snort, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. And so these guys have done a lot of work on this Angler uh, exploit that is, uh, I guess, yeah, so really, really well known. But they got some they got access to a bunch of detail that really blew this thing wide open. Apparently, tell me about yeah, it. Yeah. So um, Angler was the exploit kit that kind of took over after Black Hole went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's been the biggest exploit kit out there for quite a while. Um, and, you know, it's one of the largest and most featureful exploit kits uh, that you can go and buy on the black market and, you know, start your own uh, malvertising or ransomware or whatever nefarious thing you want to do with the, your uh, exploits. Mm -hmm. So in its research, Cisco, uh, you know, determined that a very large number of the proxy servers used by Angular were located on servers at a service provider called Limestone, Net sorry, oh. Limestone Networks in uh, Dallas in the U.S. Uh, and that, you know, that particular group that was running those servers was responsible for about 50% of all the Angular exploit kit activity in the world. And we're hitting up to 90,000 victims a day and could have been generating as much as $30 million a year. hey -o. Not bad. Uh, so the Talos organization gained uh, additional visibility into the global activity of the network through their ongoing uh, collaboration with Level 3, which is a big backbone ISP. Mm -hmm. If you remember, we talked about the uh, two months ago or so, uh, Talos teaming up with Level 3 and they shut down that big uh, SSH botnet. Yes, that's, that was them, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, so by working with those guys again, they were able to, by you know using uh, Level 3's ability to sample traffic all over the internet, uh, figure out where things were coming from and where they were going. 
Uh, and then also, thanks to their continued collaboration with OpenDNS, which Cisco also bought recently and put under Talos, uh, they were able to gain uh, you know, in-depth visibility into the domain activity associated with the adversaries and see what they were doing with stuff. Uh, one of the interesting things they were doing here was they were hacking into the registry accounts of people's domains. Mm. So like wherever you buy your domain from, they'd mm -hmm. hack into there. And they wouldn't disrupt your domain in a way that you would notice, but they would add subdomains that would point to the exploit kit. Clever. So they were basically hijacking your domain, but leaving the parts you use in place so you wouldn't notice. Right? Your, your average user doesn't log into their uh, domain registrar more than you know once a year to renew the domain unless they have right. to make a change. Right. And they don't go looking for, oh, what's this random letter subdomain that points to some IP address? Uh, and so that's how they were uh, being able to, you know, a lot of the things... Uh, security systems will be like, oh, that domain's only three days old, so maybe that's probably being used by bad guys or for spam. Mm. Uh, well, what if you hijack an older domain and just use that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I probably wouldn't notice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the data set was originally from uh, July 2015 and includes data from all sources available. Uh, and you know, July provided a, a unique opportunity because Angular went through several iterations of development, including new URL structure changes and implementation of several unpatched Adobe Flash vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. When that was happening yeah, back in July, uh, you know, during the analysis, trends and patterns emerged, and then they have uh, Cisco has a big paper here talking about the trends they noticed and how it's hosted, how they use domains, what the referrers are, which exploits they use, which payloads they use, and all of that. And then you know. Using those trends specifically with hosting that led to the most significant discoveries, you know. So they figured out, oh, lots of these proxies are all hosted at this one ISP in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Turns out that they uh, were uh, buy paying for the servers with stolen credit cards. <laughs> ah. and, uh, and so at that point, the place hosting the servers was very happy to just turn the servers over to Cisco. <laughs> I bet. Uh, you know. So while analyzing the data, they found that a large number of uh, a large amount of the activity was coming from the single hosting provider, and they collaborated with that hosting provider uh, to gather some previously unknown insights in Angular, uh, including details related to data flow management and scale. Hmm. You know, how did the bad guys set up these servers? How do they manage them? How many other servers do they have? How do the servers talk to each other? Can we use this to target a bunch of different places? And so on. Hmm. So it says, Angular is actually constructed in a proxy slash server configuration. There is a single exploit server that is responsible for serving the malicious activity through, uh, through multiple proxy servers. So they have their one server set up somewhere, and then they have these proxies so that when the proxies get shut down, their, their main server stays up, and it's less headache for them that way. The proxies are basically expendable. They're like mules. Clever. Delivering the stuff, right? right. Whereas the guy that's got the goods is back over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, or kind of, you know, have drug dealers work, right? They give it out to a bunch of little guys and let them go and get arrested, and then they stay. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, additionally, there's a health monitoring server that is conducting health checks, gathering information about hosts that are being uh, served exploits, and remotely erase the log files once they've been fetched. Uh, this server health, uh, the health server revealed the scope and scale of the campaign and allowed them to put a monetary value on the activity. So by actually figuring out the infrastructure of the exploit kit, and how they were, you know, the exploit kit was basically had a server that monitored all their other servers so they could decide how to route traffic. Kind of, right? we do almost <laughs> the same their, thing here at yeah, Scale Engine. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I guess you need a, to if you're going to do something like that at scale. Yeah. 
the single health server is monitoring 147 proxy servers over the span of a month and generated in excess of $3 million in revenue. Hmm. Uh, you know, despite not having a large footprint, Angular is able to uh, compromise a significant amount of users for a presumably small amount of customers. An interesting aspect is the lack of IP variety from day to day. Angular starts with an IP address. Uh, as the system compromises users and generates noise, the uh, adversaries shift to an adjacent IP address, like literally just one IP address away. Mm-hmm. So they have like a whole range there. Yeah. Uh, this activity could continue through a contiguous block of IP addresses being used from a single provider, indicating that the actor likely had multiple servers available moving from one server to the next as they were blocked. Right. Uh, looking at the amount of unique IPs, uh, while it was still clear that you know Hetzner, which is a, a similar host to Limestone in the Germany, uh, were the primary sources of Angular, uh, you know, they definitely saw other places in the list as well. So Taylor's approached both the German Hetzner and the U.S. Limestone related uh, to the information we gathered on those threat actors, and they cooperated and they worked on it. Uh, so say, uh, for example, one Talos account purchased 815 servers during the course of a week using stolen credit cards originating from different countries. Wow, that's this a heck of a number. This continued gradually, allowing the users to accumulate a fair amount of server infrastructure. Eventually, the credit cards would be identified as stolen and significant costs are incurred. Uh, according to Limestone Networks, uh, our adversaries contribute approximately $10,000 in cost and lost revenue each month. Jeez. Mm, the vast majority of this is chargebacks due to fraud your credit card. Right. I would so, imagine you know, so. They get all these orders and they buy a bunch of new servers expecting to you know, rent these out for years to come and then you know, 60 days later they get a call from the bank. All those credit card numbers have, have been charged back and, and now you owe us all that money that you just spent on servers that you can't return. <laughs> yeah, they really they really take the brunt of the cost, don't they? Although you could you could argue the fact that they didn't catch that somebody spun up 800 bogus servers with bogus credit cards. Mm-hmm. Maybe that does set off a red 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 alarm somewhere in yep. their system that maybe they could have caught before they cost them all the money. Yep. I mean 800 and something servers at once in one day? Well, I don't think it was in one day. Oh, okay. I sounded like it was okay. All right, that cuz yeah. That would be nuts. It would you would think uh, that was a week. Oh, so, in a week. Yeah, that 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 yeah, that was a bit crazy. Yeah, they're, they're definitely not. Uh, limestone's not big enough to for that to be you know normal business activity. I would think so, but what do I know? Yeah, yeah. but there's a, yeah, there's a reason why the Angular guys went after a smaller place like this instead of going with you know one of the bigger places. Because they probably would have had a system in place that would have notified them of that particular yeah. activity. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, <probably> why. <laughs> Yeah, they say uh, Limestone Networks was able to provide Talos with copies of images of the servers that were being used, as well as network captures of the wow. communications the servers were conducting for a short period of time. No, there's a gold mine right there. Images of the servers they used. Yeah, so basically, uh, when Talos contacted Limestone, Limestone started recording the network traffic, and then for a little bit, then took the servers down, imaged them, and sent the images and the traffic captures to Talos to uh, be able to figure out how everything was working. So they really cooperated. Uh, as a result of this, Talos was able to get uh, valuable information that exposed previously undisclosed aspects of the Angular exploit kit, as well as the scope of the users who were impacted. They say, uh, users do not just browse to an exploit kit, uh, they are pushed into it via malicious iframes and malvertising. Mm. Uh, both were found in su- 
significant volume during the course of the month. Tailless observed popular websites redirecting users to the Angular exploit kit via malvertising, including hundreds of major news, real estate, and popular cultural sites. Additionally, Talos found a couple of smaller volume uh, referrer chains that were being used, either as a way to direct users to Angular or just to add a layer of, uh, to the redirection chain. The first uh, was the use of dynamic DNS services. A similar type of service has been observed gaining volume recently and is also being used uh, as an additional tier in redirecting using shadow domains, which is the creating those subdomains on real domains that we're right. talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says there were almost exclusive JavaScript files that were hosted under English word-based subfolders uh, in the fake websites. Uh-huh. A huge variety of different browsers and operating systems hit Angular landing pages, including Netscape 4.0, which Hey-o. was a bit surprising. <laughs> Probably fake or really strange. But Somebody having fun uh, with an old rig, maybe? Yeah. But not all those users were served exploits. Overwhelmingly, the most common browsers to be served actual exploits were Internet Explorer and the reasons we believe are twofold. Mm. First is that Angular leveraged uh, CVE 2014-6332 heavily for the last six months and continues to do so. Uh, and they also recently added CVE 2015-2419, which also targets Internet Explorer. Uh, this exploit is targeted specifically at Internet Explorer users. Uh, the second uh, is that other major browsers like Chrome and Firefox have gone to great lengths to either sandbox Adobe Flash or prevent any Flash rendering with outdated versions. Right. Firefox even went so far as to block all Flash activity when the hacking team zero days uh, were disclosed to prevent users from being impacted. Uh, Talos also observed both CryptoWall 3.0 as well as TeslaCrypt 2.0 being delivered by the Angular exploit kit during uh, that time period. Both ransomware variants leverage uh, compromised web uh, WordPress sites to hmm. push data for labor, later retrieval. Ah, good old WordPress sites. Yep. Not surprisingly, the overwhelming majority of the exploits uh, Angular was serving were tied to Adobe Flash. Almost 75% of the exploits served to users were Adobe Flash related. Luckily, as we see now, browsers are, are mostly causing those to be less effective. Yeah, although IE seems to be like the worst platform to use Flash on. Yes. Uh, on top of that, it also happens to be the browser with the most exploits against itself <laughs> directly. <laughs> There's that, too. <laughs> uh, one of the biggest reasons that Angular has been so pervasive and able to infect so many users is the lack of antivirus coverage. During the month of July, Talos observed almost 3,000 unique hashes associated with the exploits. Uh, this data has been queried against VirusTotal, which found that only 6% of those hashes had ever been submitted to VirusTotal, mm. let alone identified and, and uploaded into virus scanners. Right. Of that 6%, the average detection was low, which uh, usually less than 10 AV engines actually detecting it. This coupled with the recent large-scale advertising campaign uh, reinforces that the user uh, browsing the internet using Internet Explorer with only basic antivirus protection is highly vulnerable to the M, uh, Angular exploit kit. Wow. Which is a pretty common corporate desktop configuration. Uh, yeah. Um, the interesting thing is just that, you know, there are so many unique uh, files they managed to create, and so it seems like it's very difficult to come up with a heuristic for the virus scanners to actually detect Angular because it's varies so much. Yeah, and especially if, you're, if your uh, entry point is through Flash, it's got to be even trickier for virus scanners. Yep. It's not like it's an executable getting saved to the file system. Well, most of the browsers have a, or most of the 
fire scanners have a in-browser thing now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. although I would turn that off if I had to use it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I just don't. Yeah, I don't use it. Uh, all right, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? <laughs> uh, no, just, uh, you know. Maybe I should do that for a living. I know. dollars a month. That's unbelievable. And you've already built the infrastructure. Yeah. <laughs> you could just deploy it in a couple of days, Alan, and be ready to go. And we, you know what we could do is we'll start by infecting podcast files. Mwahaha. No, I'm kidding, of course. Too bad you can't execute code with an MP3 or AUG file or an MP4. I, I guess there was a bug in lame at yeah. one point where you could. Yeah, or maybe <laughs> VLC, if enough lame. people watched in VLC and we could own every, like there was a zero day in VLC somehow, like, yeah. Probably we'd probably put something really long in the ID3 tag that could be executed. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, all right, so I'll take a moment and tell you about Ting, the sponsor of the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com is where you go to get our discount and support the show. That's TechSnap.ting.com, and uh, check them out. Ting is mobile that makes sense. They're an MVNO, and this gives them a couple of unique advantages. And instead of having to go dig all the ditches and install towers, they're able to work more at a meta level. They have two networks they run on top of, a GSM network and a CDMA network, and that gives you the flexibility to choose the ones that's going to give you the best coverage and speed, and it also means there's a lot of Ting-compatible devices you can just bring with you. And when you do that, Ting is an enormous value. It's, it, your, your, your service credit you're going to get for doing that will probably pay for more than your first month, and that's with a full-fledged smartphone. You just pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for the line, and it's your, your data, your minutes, and your megabytes on top of that. No contracts, no early termination fees, no bundling or ride-along services, no overages or penalties. You just pay for what you use. In fact, they have a savings calculator. You can go try them out. And like I said, because they're able to focus on other things than like digging ditches, uh, they give you incredible tools to manage your account, a smartphone application and a really, really good web application. They have really good customer service. And you know what else? They have fantastic online support as well. Also, some great devices you might want to consider, like the LG Nexus 5X from Ting. You can get it on, you can get it on CDMA or GSM. In fact, I think the phone does either or. You can get the latest Nexus 5, no contract, pure Google edition, just the way Android should be, on Ting, with no other termination fee, no contract, just pay for what you use. You own that device, and it's on the Ting network. If I was in the market right now for a phone, i got to consider that one. If you need data, data to go, like a $6 hotspot that's just ready to go in your pocket, the Netgear Zing is what I used on the road trip. Two things I really like about this. Number one, it has external hookups for external antennas. It has like little ports that open up, and you can pop in an antenna so you can boost your signal and get even better signal than what they build into the unit itself. That's really slick. Second thing I like about this is the touchscreen allows you to set up the Wi-Fi password, see how many devices are connected, do factory resets, get updates from the carrier, all on the touchscreen without having to use its web UI. And then I'm going to throw in a third one that I liked a lot. I've been really impressed with the battery life. They put a pretty decent battery in this thing. That's the Netgear Zing, $139. Once you buy that... There's no contract. You can turn it on, turn it off when you need it. It's $6. You just pay for the data when you use it. And man, is that a lifesaver. Also, check out the Ting blog if you're a cord cutter like I am. They have some really great stuff for cord cutters. It's a series they've been doing, and I've been finding it very, very useful. Do you know about Tubi TV or Popcorn Flicks or Pluto TV? They have those all rounded up on the Ting blog. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Find out about them. Maybe try out their savings calculator and see how much you would save. Go look at a lot of the great devices they have from feature phones all the way up to the greatest Android devices and the iOS devices. Right, avail- right there available on the Ting network. TechSnap.Ting.com. You can take control of your wireless service. You feel like you're back in the position of power with great service and great functionality. And you just pay for what you use. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock. You guys rock. 
Okay, Alan, we're going to go deep into the story behind, everybody knows it's everybody's favorite, MS-08067. Yeah, so this is a, an exploit from 2008. Right. So, you know, this has been fixed for a while. But it's an interesting story, and it talks a lot about stuff that kind of, you know, we've been talking about a lot lately. Okay. Like, I remember when, um, when Adobe added all these exploit mitigation things into Flash to try to prevent there from being more yeah. big Flash zero days? Yeah, yeah. Notice how things have been fairly calm? Since? It has <laughs> helped, hasn't it? <clears throat> well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, okay. <laughs> Basically, we'll need a longer time sample yeah. to tell. Yeah, but at least it's been quieter li- recently. Yeah. Um, so this is the story of a zero-day exploit uh, that affected all versions of Windows and came to light in 2008. Uh, so they say, the attackers had a remote code execution vulnerability that affected every version of Windows, gave them full control at the system uh, privilege level, which is the highest, uh, left almost no forensic footprint, and could be used anonymously from anywhere on the internet. Their exploit was 95% reliable. Almost perfect. Almost. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Almost. Uh, so to understand MS-08067, you need to understand MS-07029. <laughs> Sorry, that sounds horrible. Uh, <laughs> so that was a remote code execution vulnerability in Windows DNS. Mm. Uh, with MS-07... Uh, there was a series of remote procedure call server vulnerabilities that were uh, steadily being ferreted out by Microsoft, by the attackers, and by security researchers. Uh, There's one difference. In this MS-07029, it was the first remote code execution where we had uh, the Visual Studio return address protection and Windows data execution prevention in effect. Mm, I remember that. Uh, we refer to these defenses as exploit mitigation, and we had been steadily adding them since Windows XP Service Pack 2. It was one of the ways we were using uh, security engineering to combat security issues in engineering. <laughs> you get that one? That's security, secu- engineering, security, secu- no, I didn't follow it. Security engineering to combat security issues in engineering. Oh, okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> what uh, could go wrong? So, once an exploit has trashed the internal memory of a process, there is no recovery, and the only option is to force a crash. Well, that's a terrible user experience for sure, mm-hmm. it's better than resulting in a compromised machine. True. So, by September 2008, we had built a system that screened millions of crashes uh, for security exploits. So, they used the Windows error reporting thing and would get all these crash reports and then split them up into buckets and be able to tell... Oh, look, we see a bunch of crashes all caused by the same thing, and it looks like it's actually a bug in the program that could be exploited. Hmm. They can go and fix it. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we saw data where, you know, the biggest problem with Windows 7, I think, when it first came out, a lot of people had stability problems with it, and and, uh, Windows error reporting was able to point to a bug in the the NVIDIA driver was why so many people were having trouble with that. I kind of do remember something about that, yeah. Yeah. Of course, this is the release of Windows 7, which was like how many years ago now, but anyway. 2009. Was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was six years ago now. Anyway, so uh, they had, you know, Windows error reporting is fairly new in 2008, and they had that. Along the way, he felt like he joined the world's smallest profession, and that is exploit failure engineering. <laughs> That's an interesting so, way to look at it. On September 25th, a crash came in that got my attention an exploit in Net API 32. Uh, this new crash was in very similar code but in a very different uh, Windows error reporting bucket. Hmm. 
It wasn't in the top 100 crashes or even the top 1,000 crashes. It was, in fact, in bucket 45,000. Wow. And had exactly two hits ever. Uh, so, you know, this was living in the long tail. Yeah. So what made this tiny bucket stand out? First, there was an exploit. Uh, and by looking at it, he found shell code in the crash dump. Mm. And he reviewed the shell code and saw that it used an egg hunt to find the payload. An egg hunt is an exploit engineering technique used when a buffer overrun is constrained in terms of how much payload can be sent. Mm. So when you do a buffer over uh, buffer overflow, you know, basically take you know a chunk of memory that's meant to hold something and you put more than it was meant to hold in it. And then now with the thing that was supposed to come after, which maybe was a bit of code, when you run it, it will be, you know, the second half of that message you just stuffed in that buffer that wasn't big enough. Okay. And so if you you know, pat it with like X's up until how big the buffer is supposed to be and then put some code after it, you can jump into that code. Now, the problem is that there's usually what's called a guard page at the end of this bunch of variables before you get into like the next program. And if you try to touch that, it crashes. Right? It's mm. there to, to prevent you from running over into some other application yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Uh, so if the buffer is near the end, there's not enough room to put your exploit in there. So what you do is you somehow get your exploit into some other part of the memory, right? So you just put it into some variable that's, you know, where it's not an exploit. You know, you just get it in a big buffer that, can, that has enough room to hold it. Then, in the limited size buffer, you do uh, a buffer overflow with just a bit of code that searches for that other variable of memory and jumps to it, right? So you take your exploit, uh -huh. and in front of it, you put some very unique string. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know, make one up. Uh, and there's an uh, example here in the code. But basically, in the limited bit of space that you have for code, mm -hmm. you just make it search for the bigger bit of code you put somewhere else. Right. And it works around the problem of that, that limit. So that is very fun. I mean, assuming yeah. you can have a bigger piece of code somewhere else for it to get to. Yeah. And usually, you know, anything involving the Internet has some way of receiving large amounts of data and sticking it in memory somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the second thing unusual about the crash dump was not just the way it failed. It was uh, the way it succeeded before it crashed. <laughs> uh, I looked beyond the crash thread to the other threads in the process. One of them revealed the attacker was already exploiting the process and the shellcode was in the middle of downloading a payload using the URL download to file mm -hmm. thing in Windows. So while egg hunts weren't new, this was a new flavor of shellcode for uh, NetAPI32 exploits and clear evidence of a successful exploit. The final nail in the coffin was the version information in the crash dump. Uh, the net API 32 that had crashed was fully patched. Mm. This seemed to be the only explanation of this would be a zero day out in the wild. Yeah. You know, most of the time, security researchers find a vulnerability when uh, then work to write an exploit. Right. So you you find the problem, you write an exploit to prove that the problem exists and to be able to prove that it's fixed once it's fixed. Uh, but in this case, they knew somebody had a vulnerability, but they didn't know what the bug in the code was. Mm -hmm. So he was going in reverse, examining an exploit to determine what the vulnerability in the code was, right. armed with only a forensic crash and no way to actually reproduce it. Uh, had the exploit blown away the you know, crucial clues in the buffer overrun itself, so he studied the crash over and over and looked at the source code of NetAPI32. You know, vulnerabilities are often obvious in hindsight, but stubborn to reveal themselves <laughs> at first. Yeah. And here is my dilemma. 
if I could not find the vulnerability, despite having a clear exploit, there's nothing they could do about it. Right. Uh, so he brought the case to his manager uh, of the Microsoft uh, RC security engineers, uh, Andrew Roth, and he says, remember the moment Andrew stopped by his office later, he said, I found a vulnerability. So he walked down the hallway to the office of the crisis manager, who was uh, in the middle of a meeting with someone else in his office. There must have been something about the expression on our faces because he turned to his visitor and abruptly said, I'll talk to you later. And then uh, those guys walked in. He must have gotten the hint right on the guy's face. We have a zero day. Yeah, (laughs) something was wrong. (laughs) And we explained the basic facts. We had a vulnerability uh, that could be remotely exploited anonymously and affected all versions of Windows. It was wormable and somebody was already exploiting it. Uh, when you say the words wormable to a crisis manager, it activates latent response in their DNA. <laughs> Good. <laughs> in his uh, quiet way, he went from 1 to 11 immediately uh, to get to work mobilizing everyone. You know, At this point, Microsoft is scared by the history like Code Red and the Blaster Worm. Uh, when an issue is wormable, at Microsoft, everyone shows up and works at it as job number one. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, when analyzing it, they found that on Windows Vista and Windows Server 2008, the exploit always failed. The security deployment lifecycle process at Microsoft made sure that these OS editions had full ASLR and DEP for the SVC host application. Mm. So while that feature had been available in Windows XP and Server 2003, uh, it wasn't on by default. And now, with the next version, they had switched it on for critical services. I don't think it still wasn't on for everything, but for the critical parts. Uh, and so that was the interesting thing. And so uh, when they were investigating it more, they found that it didn't quite work reliably hmm. all the time. Hmm. So the solution the bad guys came up to uh, was to first call the vulnerable function with the benign input that had the slash character, you know, that wouldn't be triggered by the vulnerability. Uh, this data would stay latent in the stack, kind of like a ghost, until the next time the function was called. You know, this technique was perfectly reliable if Windows used the same thread for both requests. This happened nearly all of the time. Nearly. In a quirk of fate, the Windows RPC thread pool handed the second request containing the exploit to a different thread, one that did not have the carefully placed slash character. And so the Net API 32 code kept searching until it ran off the end of the stack, hit the guard page, and crashed. So the only reason Microsoft had found this crash dump is because in a fluke, in two cases out of who knows how many, um, a second thread got the request instead of the... Uh, when the, atta- the exploit sent two requests, almost every time they both get served by the same thread. Mm-hmm. But in two cases out of how many possible thousands or whatever there were, it hit a different thread and it crashed. Hmm. So basically, uh, the exploit involved putting a slash really late in the string uh, and being able to, to overrun the buffer. Uh, but if you didn't have this irregular string in from the first run through the function, then it, would keep, it wouldn't find a slash and then it would overrun. Yeah. So uh, once MSRC was ready with a patch, we made the decision to ship it out as an out-of-band update. Hmm. Every patch release uh, starts the clock in terms of copycat exploits. This is one of those dilemmas in the uh, security business. Naturally, you want to ship an update as soon as it's ready. But when you ship an out-of-band update, many IT teams aren't ready, uh, and this slows down how quickly systems actually get updated. 
attackers don't hesitate to download the patch, diff it against the previous code, and start building an exploit. Sure. And in this case, that's the reverse engineering of, we know what mm-hmm. they fixed, so now mm-hmm. we have to write an exploit for the unfixed version. Right. Uh, and so defenders are caught on their back foot, may it be at a disadvantage as they're scrambling to re- re- uh, rearrange their schedule to deploy the update. Uh, meanwhile, the bad guys now have the exploit. So is, is it better to wait for Patch Tuesday or do an out-of-band emergency patch? Hmm. Uh, you know, if they do the Patch Tuesday, then IT teams around the world are ready. Uh, you know, this is, happens once a month, and they, they have a process, and they deal with it quickly. But, you know, if they, wait, they don't want to wait. Yeah. Yet, it's like how many people are being exploited. And, and, you know, we know for a fact this is being exploited out in the wild. Uh, so, so, so the question was, wait for Patch Tuesday or ship early and disrupt customers? Yeah. The answer was clear. We had a critical vulnerability. Uh, we had an uptick in activity. The patch was ready, so they went with a out of band. Okay. You know, ask anyone about MS-08-067, uh, and most will mention Conflicker. Conflicker, yeah. Yep. Uh, Conflicker was the, like one of the first, well, not the first one to get a name, but one of the many first to get a name. Conflicker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at this point in October, Configure did not even exist yet. Mm. Configure, as disruptive as it was, mm. affected only the tail of computers that were not patched. Uh, I think uh, earlier in the article it mentioned that uh, Windows Update patched about 400 million systems yeah. uh, before, between the time they released this and when uh, Configure came out. Plus, uh, plus they it, also mentioned probably many more behind corporate firewalls. Right. Uh, you know, imagine what would have happened if Configure had half a billion more systems to infect. Mm-hmm instead of what it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Windows Update was one of the best things they ever did. Yep. Even if they've sometimes used it to push weird things down to end users, it's still cumulative well, good that it's done. Is you just remember, Windows Update's been around for a long time, but what they changed was having, you know, it be automatic and... and if you remember, not it used to be ninety eight. Yeah, it was, it was like a website you went to. It was awful, and and you would like every so often you would just manually go to this website. It was that until Windows site. Seven. It was that until Windows Seven, right? Windows XP had the client built in. Oh, did it? Did it? Yeah. I couldn't remember if it had the ActiveX control panels website or not. I no, no, it didn't have it. Uh, it had like a, a desktop app that would yeah download, so Ugh. you didn't have to use the browser. That was the worst. Because uh, I remember for actually for XP. Maybe XP didn't have the I thought they transitioned in XP to that. I think they transitioned to, I mean, like, X, uh, Service Pack 2 or 3 yeah, or whatever. Yeah, Because um, I remember at one point, there was a website you could go to in Firefox yes. and download the actual.exes. Yes, yes. And at one point, I switched to using the Microsoft Baseline Security Analyzer yep. to, and to download each individual thing. Yep. And then I wrote a shell script. So uh, we did when we built computers at my friend's computer store, uh, you would just... Just plug in this USB stick and double click a script and it would install the 148 yeah. Microsoft security updates on a to a, a virgin Windows XP install. There was also a really good app that was designed for network administrators that would you tell it I have this version of Windows and it was a checkbox and it would go download all of the Windows updates for that and Microsoft shut them down under some pretense they were worried that people would somehow get bogus updates or something. It really well, yeah, sucked. If, if I wrote an app like that I would definitely slip in. If yeah, a bunch, sure. bunch of people were using it. But this was a well known, like, you know, I just, I loved it. It was such a good resource. And then they. I, I, I used, basically, I used the Microsoft Baseline Security on Yeah, that works too. Yep. And it would give you the links to the, the TechNet articles to download the actual mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it was a little cumbersome. And also, it was just, it would always, when you click a link, it would always start IE, even though if your default browser was Firefox. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. But anyway. Huh, looking back, that was a big one, wasn't it? 
Yeah, uh, but mostly it's a story about how you know the Finding one bug DEP made a big difference. Yeah, and how you know the random bug report from the fact that it randomly didn't work in two instances out of who knows how many thousands possibly uh, tipped them off enough that they could fix it uh, soon enough to make a difference for Configure. It's a really good write-up too if you want to read the entire yeah, thing. It's got a lot more detail than I could blabber on about. Mm-hmm. We'll have links to it in the show notes. Lots of links this week in the show notes. Lots of data in the show notes. Alan, I'll tell you about something I can blabber about. That's IX Systems. Man, these guys are great. IXSystems.com slash TechSnaps, where you go to support the show and land on their page just for the TechSnap audience, where they have a guide to buying the ultimate server. Ultimate server! It's an ultimate guide, too, for a server for open source software. That's really, I think, where IX stands out, is there's so many great technologies now where you can build your solutions that are perfect for your needs. They fit exactly what you want. And then, of course, with a lot of the out-of-the-box solutions and hardware OEMs, once you do that, they're, oh, well, that's a custom config. We can't support that. Or that, we don't really understand how that works. We don't, we don't recommend, not IX systems. You tell them, you call them what you want to do, and they'll work with you from the beginning to make sure it does exactly what you need to do, hardware-wise, yes. performance-wise. It's a really great experience. Agreed, well, Alan? And that's Yes, and that the other big thing is, instead of, you know, having some marketing literature that says, oh, our thing can do a million IOPS, it's like, well, how many IOPS do you need at a minimum? And we'll build a system that will never be, will, will always be able to yeah. serve at least that many. Right. Because who cares how many it can do at peak? Yeah. I want to know how many it's going to be able to do under worst case scenario. Yeah, yeah. You, wanna, you, know? you also want to know I, that the people you're want, talking to... I want to know when my VMs are going to be the slowest. I don't care about when they're going to be the fastest. And you want to know those people actually know what they're talking about. Yes, that too. Yeah, that's a big Being part of the Being able to talk recipe. to people that actually know what's yeah. going on makes yeah. a big difference. I like this. You caught this. Up at their blog, the IX Systems uh, Free NAS Worst Practices Guide. Not a best practices guide. <laughs> it's a worst practices. You got to yes. do it. Exactly. In, in this case, it's, it's just one of those cases where, sure, there are a bunch of best practices, but the, the big thing is make sure you don't do these things, and yeah. then you're pretty much okay. That's a good Even way to go about it. if you're not doing all the best practices, just make sure you definitely avoid doing these mistakes. These are good ones, too. Yep. I've had uh, some people And they're also the this. ones people make the most often. Yeah, I could see that. I could totally you know, see that. Uh, the first one is using RAID. Don't use RAID. Hardware just, RAID. No, no, let, let ZFS do it. It's better. Yeah, just, using hardware RAID with ZFS. Yeah, no good. Yeah. No, no ZFS bueno. is designed to communicate directly with the disks, sticking a controller between it is just bad news. I like that. Especially since the worst one is that people usually will use RAID to create a giant volume and give it to ZFS. And ZFS is like, this is just one disk. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you expect me to do redundancy on this. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm here for? Do you realize why I'm here? (laughs) I've detected some corruption. I just can't fix it because you only gave me one disk. Yeah. Meanwhile, your RAID array is like, oh, I don't care about corruption. Let's just spread that all over the Did place. Did you mean to choose extended four? I'm not sure why I'm here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and support this show and check out their awesome products, including we have a free NAS Mini here at the JB1 Studio, and of course, all the way up to the rigs that are really mind-blowingly powerful. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Well, because the other big one they have here is wasting money on uh, 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 S-log. Uh, a separate intent log yeah, uh, to speed up your ZFS when you have an asynchronous write workload. I've seen lots of people spend mm. all this money on really expensive mm-hmm. SSDs when mm-hmm. their workload is like, I'm going to put all my movies on this. It's like, well, that's yes. never going to use that SSD and you right. wasted a bunch of money. It's a big you waste. You bought two more hard drives instead. Good point. Good point. That is, yeah, that's a good article. Hey, Alan, let's give a quick plug to BSD Now, too. Episode 110 just hit the interwebs. Firmware yes. Fights. 
Been fighting yeah, words. Uh, the title was meant for a different interview, but we had already recorded that when the interview got canceled. That, so. That's funny. <laughs> so you, Luckily, the <laughs> interview that aired kind of could be interpreted to be about firmware as well, so it was okay. I love it. Like the, the titles are like they're precious commodities. Once they've been used, there's no going back. <laughs> well, it was more so. You we said don't the mention intro. the title. Yeah. Mm. So we have the cold open and then the intro. Right? right. And the intro is when we put the title. And so normally we have the title before the show starts rather than at the end like we do on TechSnap. Yeah. And because of that, it uh, bit us for the first time. There you go. It took 110 episodes. That's actually not bad. It, it took me a lot less episodes for it to bite me before I changed that. Uh, that's not, there you go. Firmware Fights episode 110. Go get an HD. That way you get all the resolutions of Alan Jude's face right as this episode finishes up because we're about the midway point yeah, it's a, in the TechSnap It's Tech a very Snap good show. interview. I recommend it. There you go. All right. Well, that's all for the TechSnap news. Let's go do the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, submitting it like a ninja at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first email comes in from Bob. Bob writes, uh, he's got us a passwordless SSH keys for deployment uh, config he wants to run by. He says, hey there, Chris and Ellen, my company manages a couple of hundred websites from an in-house CMS and also about 30 small to medium-sized custom websites, you know, static size WordPress and some e-commerce sites. We are in the process of migrating these smaller custom sites from an old 32-bit 32-bit VPS to a 64-bit VPS, and this has brought up some opportunities to review our deployment process. Some of these sites were set up in 2008 by simply copying files via FTP and walking away. I want to put together a process that allows me to simply deploy a site, bearing in mind that a deploy may need to make clever decisions about whether, whether uh, what to do with the database stuff, etc. Lately, as an experiment, I've created a passwordless SSH key for one of our deployments and then used that to push the content to the web server. The passwordless SSH key is specifically only for the user account on the web server that hosts the website in question. Where I want to go with this is to allow any user in our office, including the Windows users, who have access to the website files to be able to push the changes without having to know what server the site even lives on, what user, or what the password is, etc. The dev slash ops team would take care of that detail. So essentially he's doing an SH key gen with the website underscore RSA to create a password for the key. Then he's doing the copy ID. Um, he says, I need to enter a password for the user account one time. Our host control panel allows them to reset to uh, jangly long passwords if need. I have purchased a copy of Michael Del- Lucas's uh, SSH Mastery book, thanks for the tip, but have not had a chance yet to look through regarding passwordless SSH key and best practices. I'm aware of the security implications of keys with no passwords, but I'm more than happy if you give me a smackdown on air. Also, all of the sites I mentioned are in source control, and for some of our sites we use source control to deploy them, but this requires someone to log into the web server and initiate a pull update. Interested to hear your thoughts, and finally, thanks for the consistently well-produced, thought-provoking, and entertaining podcast. Bob, what do you think, Alan? Right, so we'll get to the SSH keys part in a minute, uh, but especially to do the thing where you know users anywhere in the company, even on Windows, can push a change to the website, it seems like the source control thing is the way to go. And so what we do is we just have a cron tab that checks out the source control every five minutes. Or uh, for other ones, we have a, a mm-hmm. puppet job that once every 30 minutes, it checks if there's any updates to the search control, yeah. and if there is, then it applies them. Okay. Uh, and then anyone anywhere in our company just commits the change to the source to the 
the version control repository, our Git or SVN or whatever, and then it shows up on the website eventually. Uh, if you need it to be more, you know, instantaneous, uh, then you can either run it more frequently, although you probably don't want to be checking your uh, source <laughs> repo every one minute all the time. No. Uh, you could use SSH keys to then remotely kick off the SVN update or, or Git update or whatever, hmm. as opposed to yeah. actually just using it to copy yes. the files. Yeah. Um, this also has the advantage of doing a better job managing local changes. If something does get changed on the website, you can see a diff of what's been changed from the what's in the repo, and then you know decide to commit that or revert it or whatever, as opposed to just stomping over top of it with copying all the time. Um, you know, the big caveat with that setup is, you know, be careful with storing things like database passwords and config files in your source repository. Hmm. Uh, for your SSH keys thing, well, that'll mostly work. You have to be careful where you store this, you know, website underscore RSA key, uh, because because it has no password, anybody that can read that can access the account that it points to. Uh, your biggest problem with using the SSH keys to allow everybody to do it is you probably end up with that SSH key in multiple places, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to allow users on a Windows machine to be able to, you know, SFTB files with FileZilla or something directly to the website, they're going to need a copy of that key on their computer or somewhere where they can access it. And you probably don't want a whole bunch of people having access to that key. Uh, so that's why I would recommend, you know, they use their key to commit to SVN or Git or whatever, and then the website pulls from that. Uh, and that allows you to abstract so nobody has to know what server anything's on, uh, and it just works. Uh, although you could create something where, you know, via a, a web interface or a shell command or something, somewhere, uh, it would use these SSH keys to kick off that SVN update command. But, you know, usually just doing it once every five minutes or once every half hour is good enough. Uh, if you need it more frequent, uh, if, you're after, if you're using it for development, uh, so we have a dev version of the Scale Engine website that, you know, I make changes and commit them, and I'm like, well, I need to know if it works now, not in five minutes. It would slow me down a lot to have to wait all the time. So we have a dev environment where I can kick it off manually. Mm. Uh, but, you know, you can also just do that off the local machine or whatever. So, yes, yeah, source control is probably your best bet, but the SSH keys can work. Just, you know, you have to be very careful with those keys because all someone needs is that key, and they have access to that account. Interesting, interesting thought-provoking, actually, too. I uh, hadn't thought yep. it through like that. So what do you um, think? Do you like his overall idea? I like the second one of using social control. Yeah, yeah, me <laughs> too. Because that's what I do. Yeah, and, um, the, and the ones where... For the SSH keys, you might consider... Doing the key copy the other way around might be helpful. Uh, so SSH as you know, an admin user and then sue to the website user and create the key in there, set it up in their um, authorized keys or whatever, and then copy the private key back to your place somewhere else. Uh, and then you'll be prompted for the password for you know the storage, the secure account or whatever on the control server. And you won't have to reset the user's password every time you want to do this. Because you know, that might be a pain to reset the user's password all the time. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That could be, of uh, course, if he has or, people to do that. Yes, but uh, the cheeky thing I like to do also is um, rsync has uh, this command. It's like um, rsync-path is an extra, uh, a long ops flag. 
And normally it's meant for you to give it, you know, oh, I have rsync installed in some weird place on the remote server. What I use it to do is prefix the rsync command with stuff like sudo minus u bob <laughs> rsync. So now when rsync tries to run, it doesn't run as the user issh in as, which is, you know, Allen or something. Uh, it runs as bob. So now um, you can ssh in as, uh, so you're on the control server. You ssh into the web server as an administrator who has sudo access to sue to, you know, web, web server user and to drop the uh, ssh public key. Right, so uh, I think you could probably do something similar with the SSH copy ID and some setting some environment variables or something. But basically, to avoid needing the user's password when you do the SSH copy ID, you would do it as a user who you know you have the SSH key for to mm-hmm. do passwordless or you know prompt locally for your password rather than the user's password. Um, then, on the far side, it would use sudo or something similar to become the user you're trying to copy the file to. And that way you don't need ever use his password. Right. And it'll save you doing a bunch of resets. Yeah. Are you ready, Alan, to shift gear into a ZFS yep. zone? We have a couple of ZFS questions that are coming to the show. I mean, it wouldn't be a tech snap feedback segment without some solid ZFS questions. So here we go. Uh, I think I'm, I'm going to say Luca or Lusa writes in with his first question. Uh, the, uh, he says, thanks for all the great shows. I have a question for you regarding what happens during a RAID Z resilvering. Say I have a RAID Z1 with a dead drive. I replace it and then resilvering starts. Then during the rebuild process... An unreadable sector is encountered. My understanding is that this is where ZFS is better than the traditional RAID 5, and only the files that contain that bad sector will be lost, and not the whole array. Is it how this actually works, though? How can I tell what's actually been lost? That said, would you trust a RAID Z1 made of 4x4 terabyte Western Digital Reds? That is what I'm planning for my home server, and it will only contain movies, TV shows, and secondary copies of other data backed up elsewhere on CrashPlan. Losing a couple movies wouldn't be a catastrophe, but losing everything on the array would definitely be annoying. Sorry for the long email, but thanks for your help, and greetings from Italy. Yeah, so the big thing here is because ZFS does checksums, it knows uh, when it reads a file whether it got back the good copy of the file or garbage. And so when it gets this unreadable sector, it'll just be like, oh, okay, let me find another copy of that. Oh, there are no other copies of that because you've already lost the drive. Um, I guess that chunk of the file is dead. Sorry. Uh, If it happens to be metadata, it could take out more than one file. Uh, but metadata almost always has at least two copies before you get to RAID Z redundancy. Mm. Um, so, although there are some options to reduce that to make things write faster, but those are mostly for databases and don't matter so much. Um, so, in general, yes, uh, ZFS will do it properly, and you should be okay. I like that. And so, how does he know which data specifically has been lost? Like, is there a well? When you do zpool status minus v, it will give you a list of the files. Okay. You will see weird, just hexadecimal things if the file's been deleted, because uh, you can. Aha. Uh-huh. Because of things, you can lose data that's <laughs> been deleted. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, in which case, you're like, oh, well, that's nice because I don't care. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, that makes you can sense. lose files that are only in a snapshot. So that you, you're not even using the file. It just exists in a snapshot. And you're like, oh, well, I can just delete that snapshot or mm. whatever. Or you can keep it because you're only missing the one file. Now, we do have more uh, ZFS email because it did come in, but uh, we'll sprinkle them in uh, maybe next week. Jamie writes in with our last ZFS question for the day. We have a few free NAS setups at my work, and we're really happy with them. 
But as they say, if you don't have two backups, then you don't really have a backup. We're currently sending snapshots to another external JBOD connected to the same server to save us if we lose the original pool. But we need to send another copy off-site to our other data center so I can sleep at night. Currently, FreeNAS doesn't support doing ZFS sends and receives to more than one location. I know Alan runs vanilla FreeBSD, so I'm wondering what tools he uses to accomplish this, and more specifically, if those tools will run on FreeNAS. Thanks for the great show, guys. Jamie. I'm not sure why ZFS wouldn't let you send to two locations. I was wondering if that's true, too. Is that just maybe a function of the UI limitations the of FreeNAS? Well, I'm not, which way do you set it up? And I'm not that familiar with FreeNAS, but normally you would set up on the slave to pull from the master, and so the master doesn't need to know that there are two, but I guess maybe it, you oh. push with, ZFS, or with uh, FreeNAS? I don't think so. That doesn't sound right. Maybe he hasn't tried it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh you should be able to do it with FreeNAS, but uh, I use Zexper, Z-X-F-E-R. Ah, Zexper. Uh, a little shell, little shell script, and you can run it on either side. Uh, changes the command line parameter slightly, but you can say either push this data set from the server to that. You server, actually have it up on your GitHub page. Pull. Ah, yes. Right? The upstream guy, nobody <laughs> was maintaining it, so I've taken over. <laughs> All right, I'm putting a link to that in the show notes. That's clay. That's great. You recommended your uh, own tool, but hey, why not? Yeah, I guess that means you use it, right? I didn't write the whole thing, yeah. but I've written all of the recent patches for Okay, it. very good. I will uh, add a link right below that email in the show notes to uh, ZX for on from Alan's uh, GitHub page. Yes, but uh, yeah, I, I do this all the time. That's, that's why there's a data center in my basement, because I needed <laughs> an off-site location to store the backups, and it was a great way to justify having an <laughs> Stupidly expensive internet connection at my house. Right, right. Okay, so Kevin writes in with a uh, video encoding question. Hey guys, thanks for the great show. Apologize for a bit off topic, but I need to encode a live video that will be streamed to several Raspberry Pis, which are playing on the back of TVs. The stream will either be seven, uh, 1080p or 720p, probably 720p, and I need to close to zero latency as possible from encode to decode. This will be a, on a gigabit LAN, so I'm not worried about bandwidth. I just need speed and quality. I considered doing an encoding on a NUC, probably fed by USB 3.0. Any tips on codec settings and encoding hardware, etc.? Thanks, Kevin. He says, by the way, I just bought a WatchGuard Firebox firewall on eBay. Can't wait to install PFSense on it. So, Alan, the two things that don't always go really well together when it comes to, to encoding is speed and, and quality. Usually, the more quality, the less speed you get. So, where does yeah, he uh, walk that line? The biggest thing is, uh, that I'm concerned about is his uh, capture via USB 3.0. Because you and I have not had great luck with that. Yeah, it can be a little ins- unstable. Although today it's working, so... Okay, well, uh, you're using a different thing. Yeah, we I'm using the Magwell. We both have one of those, yeah. uh, the, the Blackmagic mm-hmm. That does The Blackmagic shuttle, shuttle does seem to be much more unstable um, than the Magwell. Or rather, only, only works with one certain USB 3.0 chipset. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Anyways. I don't even know how that's possible. Yeah. But, I'll see if I can uh, find the Magwell in on Amazon. That's where I bought it. Yeah, Magewell. Here it is. Yeah. Now this one I, is a little expensive, but it's USB okay. 3.0 uh, and it's uh, it does I think HDMI I paid capture. More than that for the yeah, Black Magic yeah. piece of crap. Probably. Yeah, and this nice thing about this it works with Mac, Linux, and Windows, right out of the box. So it probably also works with FreeBSD as well because it's just using like standard. Uh, video stuff. So, uh, what do you think? So, you know, for us, we are, we, we try to get out as the video as so, fast as possible. So that way, the chat room can respond. Talking about doing this just over a LAN, right? Like yeah. He just wants to stream from one place. You can do that with just VLC on both ends, or FFmpeg or uh, as the source, and VLC as the sync. Um, and then just do a UDP stream. But yeah. So for what we do for Jupyter Broadcasting, uh, there's about a five second latency between the encoder and 
between what the origin receives and what the user ends up seeing. Plus, there's possibly a small buffer in Wirecast right, itself. Right. Uh, plus, there's a buffer in the player, uh, although we tune that down quite a bit. Uh, but it comes down. The less buffer you have, the more likely you have of hiccups. Uh, and it depends what your goal is. Um, so I would say just a, like a UDP stream or RTP stream uh, with VLC was your best bet for over a LAN because yeah. you don't have to worry about packet loss and you'll have all the bandwidth there. And I would say H.264 uh, for the video. Yeah. Baseline is going to give you a faster turnaround. Mainline is yes. going to look a little better. And high is going to look really good, but you're going to have a, a look. Eat your CPU. And the Raspberry Pi probably won't be able to decode anything belong. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's the reason why Baseline was popular for so long yeah. because iPhones could only play back, you know, back on the iPhone threes and yeah, so on. Yeah. They only had enough CPU to actually decode baseline. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Raspberry Pi is going to be somewhere around in there. The Raspberry Pi does have a hardware decoder, so you might be able to just play with it. Yeah, with with 720p and even maybe 1080p, you're probably better off. You're going to get more quality at 720p because yeah. you'd rather have more bit rate. Yeah. Uh, and not yeah. waste all the time driving. I bet. I bet if you did a baseline 720p H.264. I bet 20 megabits even you could go really high on the Oh yeah. Bits. Oh yeah, you could, on over uh, the you could go way high over a LAN. You don't even need to yeah. go that high. You don't even need you could do, yeah. probably get away with 5 megabits and probably look fine. Yeah, 5 megabits probably look really like, you know. Yeah. Text app looks pretty good and that's like 800 kilobits. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's why H.264 is so awesome. Now the the one the one advantage TextNap has when we put it out is we encode with X264 which allows a lot better quality but it and it also it takes better advantage of multiple CPUs. Yeah, yeah. So if you're using FFmpeg as, or VLC as your source, it will have that same X264. Yep, yep. and X264 would be a great way to go. All right, well, there so you yeah, go. So uh, yeah, VLC kind of has this all built in. You can just, uh, you would do, you can even do multicast. So you would yeah. send it once over your network right. from, from uh, the, your uh, source NUC. machine. Yeah. And it basically goes out kind of as, well, it's multicast, but as a broadcast, and yeah. all three of the machines would receive it once. So... You know, you wouldn't actually have to send uh, three separate streams. We uh, uh, here. If there's in, any routers in the way, this will probably break. Yeah, here in the studio, we are using an, uh, a NUC with a Core i5 processor in it, and we use OBS to generate all of the rerun streams. So all of the rerun streams are being streamed over RTSP over the LAN to Wirecast to get rebroadcasted. So uh, we're actually kind of doing a mini version of this, and OBS yeah, works uh, great. What RTSP is is a protocol to set up. A pair of UDP streams, one for video, one for audio. audio. Yep, yeah, and it works fantastic for this. Uh, the delay is like three seconds, I think. Right. Which but, is uh, if if you use VLC with just the plain like uh, UDP stream of already muxed video, uh, you could probably get the delay down to yeah, like two hundred milliseconds or something. Yeah, yeah. We we don't really care about delay in our set in our setup. It really, I love when people say, you know, I need absolutely lowest latency possible. It's like, well, do you mean like? Five seconds or three seconds or like a hundred milliseconds because yeah. there's a big difference. Yeah, and it, it's you also have to even when you're doing over the land, it's worth stopping for a moment and appreciating the scope of what you're actually pulling off. Like yeah. you are and taking a video file, you are re-encoding it and transmitting it, and then at the other end decoding it all in real time. Like mm-hmm. it's a pretty pretty sophisticated amount of math the computer is doing on both ends and sending yeah. packets over a network. It's actually pretty impressive. And when you do it over the internet, no regards, and then people complain about a seven-second uh, delay or eight-second delay, I'm like, it, I, I'm amazed it doesn't take you an hour to get this picture, exactly. let, alone, let alone eight seconds. So you got to give it some, yeah. some You're leeway. Like you don't have to wait until yeah. we're done recording <laughs> and then we publish it tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, live is really kind of quite amazing. Yeah. Uh, so in VLC, in the advanced options, you'll see the commit. Uh, the nice thing is if you use the GUI on a, a 
desktop machine, uh, you can use it to help get all the gunk you need to put into a command line version of it. But anyway, uh, I would say on the receivers for this, you'll want like a 250 millisecond buffer or more in VLC so that if there is any hiccup with a packet, uh, you don't notice it on the playback. Uh, otherwise, you will get, you know, a single pixel gets garbled and you'll get like pink or green goo until the next keyframe and so on. Yeah, the green frame thing did plague me for a little while, didn't it? Yep. Uh, also, right. uh, you know, you want a keyframe rate that's uh, more frequent will give you, uh, if there is, you know, green, purple crap that happens, it'll clean up faster if you have the... Uh, uh, a more frequent yeah. keyframe. Yeah, yes, yes, the key. Yep. Play around with those, and uh, you can also go find out what gamers do to get uh, the best picture and leg and time, and you can yep. sometimes adapt some of those steps, too. All right, here's how you email the TechSnap program. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. If you didn't hear your email in this episode, well, we'll probably get to it in the next couple of weeks. Thank you for sending those in, and keep sending in your systems network and administration and storage questions, because we love them. And with the email all done, you know what that means? It's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And you know what? A lot of these links came from our awesome, powerful, amazing subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, like our first story. This one is no bueno for Samsung. Chinese hackers have breached LoopPay, the service behind Samsung's new pay-with-your-phone service. And here's the really awful part for Samsung, Alan. The breach happened and they were aware of it while they were up on stage presenting how amazing this new payment system is going to be. Uh, as early as March, wow. the hackers got into the system. Yeah, go ahead. You, you don't cancel the talk. I guess not. I guess not. Samsung bought them for $250 million. And uh, they, uh, so while, while the guy's up on stage giving the presentation, LoopPay has two different security firms come in. They believe that the attackers bro broke into LoopPay's corporate network, but not the actual production network and didn't get any of the Samsung stuff. Samsung says that Samsung Pay was never impacted by this. But the New York Times points out that Loop, the, the, there's kind of some weird things going on with the investigation. Loop Pay, Loop Pay hired these two private forensics teams to investigate the breach on August 21st, just a month before it was to bring it to, uh, Samsung was bringing it to the U.S. Uh, but the investigation was unusual from the start, the New York Times says. Loop Pay told the teams to look at different portions of its networks, and one of the firms, Sortia, which is based out of Charleston, was given the backup of Loop Pay's data and then asked to leave premises three days three days into it immediately. Just here, do your analysis from the backup. You're not allowed to be on site. And uh, LoopPay also chose not to notify any law enforcement officials because they don't believe any customer data was breached, so they didn't think anybody needed to know. Yeah, it seems like we should uh, clarify the law a little bit there mm -hmm. and be like, hmm, if there's a chance that it happened, you have to notify law enforcement or something. Yeah, when it's a payment system... Oh, uh, boy. And you got to feel for Samsung because they're competing now against Android Pay and Apple Pay, and uh, then this happens. Do you know who I feel for? It's merchants. they got to try to support, like, 20 different payment systems. Right, I yeah. thought we finally got towards, you know, we have this thing. It works. So I've, I've used wireless payments, like, two, three, two or three times now, and at least two times I went to go use it. The staff had no idea it even worked. So I asked them, hey, does this support Apple Pay? Oh, I don't know. And before they're done answering, I've already paid with my phone. I'm like, oh, I guess it does. I just paid. <laughs> That's like they have no idea what's well, going on. 
<laughs> we we have an NFC thing built into the credit cards in Canada. So yeah, yeah. if you're buying something under fifty dollars, you just tap the terminal and it's paid for. Which nice. For buying coffee or that is great. You know, convenience store type thing. That's cool. Yeah. I don't use it to pay for groceries because my grocery bill is usually more, and so I have to stick the card in and type in my PIN. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I use it at a vending machine in uh, Japan and then Sweden. Really? Jeez, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, come on, Walk US. the vending machine, pick a chocolate bar, tap. I want, I want that. That's it. Uh, all right, let's talk about Facebook and their actual fairly large usage of IPv6, it looks like. Yes, you know, everybody says, oh, IPv6, why are we not doing that? It's mm-hmm. been, you know, every couple of years we're always like, oh, we're out of IPv4 addresses, everybody should use v6, and nobody does. Well, Facebook's like, turns out cell phone providers have realized that it's the only way anything's ever going to work. <laughs> right. Uh, and actually, I think it was, I forget if I'm not mistaken, it was Apple who purposely delays all connections for 50 milliseconds of to not V6. Oh, really? Just, I hadn't heard that. Just to be a dick. <laughs> um, yeah, so Facebook has found because of this, uh, now 50% of all traffic uh, from mobiles to Facebook is via V6. Because, wow, 50, huh? Uh, you know, there are a lot of cell phones and not that many IP addresses. So you yeah. know, your cell phone carrier is like V6. There you go. That's true. A lot of, a lot of cellular devices. Interesting thing when it's like, you know, it's like Verisign. You're on the wireless, sure. You, or if you're on mobile, sure. V6. If you're if you're at home, they're like, no, you can't have V6. Speaking of uh, wireless everywhere, our next story is about Verizon Wireless, and boy, is this a real p- bugger. So Verizon Wireless has this horrible, atrocious super cookie that we've talked about before. And what it as long as you're you're doing HTTP traffic, Verizon inserts a super cookie into your internet traffic to track you. Doesn't matter what site you're going to, they do it across all your sites. Well, good news, everybody. That service is getting an upgrade. They're now going to be sharing your gender, your age range, your interests, location information, things like that to AOL for AOL's ad network, which is pretty much the only way AOL makes money anymore. Now, Verizon argues that this is actually doing you a solid because they're collecting all this data, all this stuff about you, and inserting this into all of your internet traffic, but that's all staying within these two companies, guys. So it's more safe and more private. So you should be thanking Verizon. (laughs) Because you'll see ads that aren't completely unrelated to you. Yeah. They're going to have 130, 130, they're doing this to 135 million wireless customers. They, share, they say they'll share their identifier with a very limited number of other partners, and they will, not, they will only be able to use it for Verizon and AOL purposes, whatever those purposes are. In order for the tracking to work, though, Verizon needs to repeatedly insert the identifier into users' internet traffic. And, of course, if your internet traffic is encrypted, they can't insert the identifier. HTTPS everywhere, everybody. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing this reminds me of is... Back when Justin.tv was a thing, and I would go there, and I would get an ad that was completely badly targeted at me. It's like, thanks for that ad for mm-hmm. feminine hygiene products, but I don't need any of those. Well, the ones I like <laughs> is, uh, like, it, uh, I have uh, friends that are selling their house right now, and when they go to Facebook, they see, ad, they see the ad for their own house. What kind of sense does that make? Yeah. Or, uh, yes, the retargeting ones after you've bought something. Yes. Like, well, if you shop for something and don't buy it, retargeting ads are good. Right. If you've actually checked out and bought it, you're now wasting the money trying to sell me something I've already bought. AccessNow.org has a post up saying that AT&T and Vodafone also do these types of super cookie yep. tracking. So it's not just for Uh Especially since they can just, you know, being your cell phone provider, they know what your phone's unique identifier is. Yeah. And they can, you know, the important thing with these cookie, super cookies is that they don't aren't defeated by deleting your cookies or using you know uh, private browsing mode. No, because they're they're being inserted into the traffic session. 
Right, and because they're based on your phones. Uh, and they know what cell tower you're at and all that stuff. Yeah. And we've talked about in the past, Verizon is actually planning to be like, oh, they're at this cell phone tower, they're near a drugstore, and they're going to do like things like, oh, as a lot of times on their way home, they stop by this bar, so let's advertise them beer. Like, seriously, that's the kind of stuff they're looking yep. into. Uh, now, what do you think? Of, what do you make of this story? Ubuntu planning to make ZFS a file system as a standard offering in the Ubuntu server. I think this is actually possible. Uh, so, yes, they're claiming they're going to actually... Integrate the kernel that ships from Ubuntu will apparently be able to do ZFS. Here's where now, this is coming from, uh, though. It, it apparently says that it will be support for ZFS, but not ZFS on root. So your operating system would still live on mm, a regular okay. Linux file system. But if you're doing a file server or something, the file server drives would all be able to do ZFS. Uh, you know, the one true file system for all operating systems is a no, model goal, and I'm happy for it that. Is, so, now that so, you can do it on Linux... Uh, OS 10, BSD, Solaris, literally every file, every operating system that's not Windows will be able to do ZFS. Right. I mean, literally today you could do it. So this yes. this whole the rumor... Problem, the, the problem before uh, was that every time you updated your kernel, your ZFS would break and you would have to try to fix it. Uh, whereas, you know, if Ubuntu ships it as part of the operating system, then it will mean that every time you update your kernel updated ZFS will come with it. Yeah, right. If it happens. I mean, this rumor yeah. gets kicked off because Mark Shuttleworth wrote in a post, if you're if it's ZFS you're after, it'll be included in Ubuntu as standard in due course. And then yeah. a so Gentoo developer be, kind of chimes good. in and says, well, maybe we're going to see it in 16.04, potentially. It could be included with Ubuntu's Linux kernel that would be, and it would be legal. Right, so uh, in 15.10 or whatever, which is the one that's coming out like right now, right? Yeah. Um, it's going to be like DKMS or something, whatever that means. DKMS builds the module on demand when you update your kernel and then reloads the module. Right. So that's what it's going to be for 15.10. And then for 16.4, it will actually be built into the kernel. Hmm. Okay. It just, the decision seems to have come kind of late, so they had to do the other thing temporarily first or something. Interesting. Uh, so, okay. I'll, I'll wait. Yes, I'll apparently, wait and see. Uh, uh, Debian asked about it and got legal go-ahead. I, I did say. read that. I did read that. Yeah. The the um the ZFS on Linux people have been saying this for a long time and apparently some lawyer finally agreed and now it's going to happen. Amazing. Uh, okay. Well, well, buckle up. All right, so this story is kind of interesting. You know, the new iPhone's out and this story kind of cropped up a few days later. Not all iPhone 6 processors are created equal. And this is something Apple's been uh, aiming for for a while to reduce dependency on Samsung. So they're splitting up the manufacturing of Apple's A9 processor, which is a pretty kick-ass processor. TSMC has 60% of the builds, and Samsung has 40% of the builds, and they're not equal. Of course, this is being looked at by a lot of people online today, but Chipworks noted that Samsung uses a 14 nanometer process, while TSMC uses a 16 nanometer process. A Reddit user has posted tests of a pair of 6S Plus phones and found that the TSMC chip has 8 hours of battery life versus 6 hours for the Samsung. Meanwhile, benchmark tests show that folks at, from my driver... Uh, which is another benchmarking site, found that Samsung's chip is a bigger battery drain also on the phone's battery, or a bigger drain on the phone's battery, while the TSMC chip is slightly faster and also runs cooler. So what's really interesting is I always thought the whole point of the die shrink was the opposite of that. Exactly. And so that the 14 nanometer one would use less power and generate less heat. Exactly. And so it's very confusing why the Samsung one isn't as good. But it's you know it's what we've seen with uh, Intel with their TikTok setup right they the first iteration of the smaller size is is better than the last generation but not as good as it can be 
But anyway, my uh, bet it's interesting is, to see. Uh, it, it really shows the problem uh, open source kind of has with hardware is, you know, it's like, oh, well, this model of, of device has this chip in it, and so that wireless works with open source. Right. And then the vendors will just randomly change the product. And so in this case, you can see half of the phones are one chip and half of them are the other chip, and you never know which one you're going to get. Right. I mean, part of this problem, I'm sure, is because of the scale. They sold like 13 million phones in the first weekend. And the other part of the problem is they're trying to make sure they're not so dependent on Samsung. But the real issue for consumers is you don't know which one you're getting. Yeah, so you buy it, and it's like, you're just going to have some scam of like taking your phone back and trying to get a different one until you get a TSMC I one. I guess, right? Or maybe wait a couple of months, and I bet this kind of works itself out. Maybe maybe after initial demand is over, maybe they, mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes that does happen. So uh, this next story it, comes from... I would from, say it would suck if you were stuck with the uh, two hours less battery life. Yeah, exactly. Next also, story, those battery life seem terrible. What's that? Six and eight hours? Well, that's with running a test that runs the battery. I oh, mean, I, I suppose. Yeah, it's running the CPU. Yeah my, yeah, my Nexus 6 lasts like three and a half days with moderate <laughs> usage. <laughs> well, that's nice. Mine does not. Uh, all right, so tell me about this one from Cory Doctorow, Alan. Yes. Uh, so this is basically uh, talking about you know algorithmic guilt. So if uh, you're being sued or uh, you know criminally prosecuted, and they have some forensic evidence against you, you should have the right to inspect the source code of the whatever generated that forensic evidence. Hmm. You know, if, there, if there's some you know uh, software or something that has logs of what you did, you should be able to inspect the source code. Basically, it's your right to cross-examine the person who's accusing you. If that's you're being accused point. by a computer program, you should get to inspect its source code. Hmm, that's very interesting. Uh, this one, I, I'm, I'm still processing. Don't quite know what to make out of this. This seems pretty bad to me. But so there's a journalist, uh, if, I guess you can call him that. Uh, Matthew Keyes, a journalist, was found guilty on Wednesday of three counts of criminal hacking. He faces up to 25 years in prison, but looks like officials might go for five years. Keyes worked previously as an online producer for KTXL Fox 40, a Sacramento, California-based television station. Prosecutors argue that in December 2010, shortly after his dismissal, he handed over login credentials to a Tribune Media content management system, which allowed members of Anonymous to make unauthorized changes to Los Angeles Times story. Now, Keyes' lawyer forcefully argued that this was a low-level prank and not a serious crime that merited prosecution under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The federal law, which passed in 1984, was the late... Which, which is also the one that late activist Aaron Schwartz was prosecuted under. Earlier this year, Obama called for, pro- for Congress to expand prison sentences for those found guilty under this law. According to the 2013 indictment, Keyes was invited to join an IRC channel where LulzSec, the group uh, perpetrated by H.P. Gary Hack, originated. But in a phone interview with R shortly after the verdict, Keyes said that he denies this entire narrative. He says, the FBI asked me if, I could, if they could come scan my computer, and when I said no, a few months later they brought a criminal investigation to get me. It's total BS, he says. He also goes on to say that he had logged into some IRC rooms as part of a story, but he actually didn't know much about IRC. In fact, he kind of just kind of was do- using IRC for the first time. Um, he says, this is about them approaching a journalist and then deciding to profile that journalist as a criminal, and it's BS. It's absolute BS. Meanwhile, whatever attack occurred against the Tribune, not a single thing is done, and the journalist that should fright- this, as a journalist, this should frighten you. He says, some of these issues were brought up in court, but the case is so dry and technical, it really became about other things. And I think I got lost on the jury. And he's, su- he's set to be sentenced on January 20th, 2016, in a federal courtroom in California. Yeah, uh, so the big thing here is that it would seem to have been the newspaper's fault for not changing the passwords after or revoking his access when he left. Right? Yeah. I would guess that might be it, too. Like, that could be the mistake, right? Yeah, it's like... 
he shouldn't have had passwords that worked for something after he was fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't... <laughs> but yes, um, I thought it was in the roundup. I thought we had a story in the roundup about um, the problems attracting more people into the computer industry now. Doesn't ring a bell. Oh, I think it's this... Uh, Okay, so it's a little bit further down the okay. Norse one. So let's skip to that one oh, right okay. away first. Yeah, all right. Ah, so the certification disconnect. Ah. Uh, so they're talking about how to get a lot of jobs now, you need a bunch of these certifications. Certification but disconnect. it turns out yeah. a bunch of, nobody's taking the certification classes to get these certifications. And they're like, why? You know, why are there not more people getting degrees in this? And it's like, it turns out that kids don't want to do computer stuff because they keep hearing about these hacker witch hunts and people going to jail for 25 years for you know, hacking into something. So, you know, it's very hard to get kids excited about, you know, doing reverse engineering or any kind of security-related work. And that's why you see companies like Norse and, and Cisco Talos and so on having so much trouble hiring mm-hmm. people to do security research because you make one mistake and all of a sudden you're not a security researcher, you're a hacker in 25 years in prison. Yeah. Meanwhile, if you're, you know, a banker and you steal a couple million dollars, you get like, you know, a year of probation or, you know, a year at a uh, a white-collar prison. And a nice of, severance check. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it's it's really this dichotomy is like keep, you know, pushing for stronger and stronger senses for uh, computer hacking. It's like, no, we just, you know, we're yeah. approaching it wrong and we're hurting ourselves. Yeah. We can't. The, if you want to stop these hackers, we need more computer security researchers, and we're not going to get them if you keep scaring them with twenty-five years in prison for making a mistake. That's a good point. All right. But I'd say the problem in this I'd case say, was lack security at the newspaper, and you know, he provided the password to somebody who broke into it. So I really don't think that's you know breaking into anything. Hmm. Yeah. I, I like. I guess you could make it equivalent to giving somebody keys to getting in the building after you've left, maybe? Like exactly, which, doesn't, which maybe is like some, a conspiracy count or something, but it, it definitely doesn't you mean know. that you went and robbed the place. Computer abuse and, abuse and fraud act seems like an overreaction. Exactly. From, and Well, that whole, that whole law should just be shot and, and started over. But. Yeah, something from the early 80s being applied in 2015? I hmm, wonder why that And Well, problems. it's been misused so badly all yeah. over the place. It's Especially just terrible. Obama. Uh, so, do you want to do this Brian Krebs one about what's in a boarding yes. pass? Because apparently it's a exactly. lot. Exactly. Because I, you know, have a couple of them <laughs> laying around do. here. Yeah. You know, I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. So, well, um, if you scan the QR code thing there, and there's a website that can help you decode the text string that comes out of it, because it has a bunch of, you know, it tells what airport you're flying to, what airport you're flying from, well, who, which airline, and so on. But if uh, a lot of them also have like your frequent fire details and, you know, your name. Well, if you've ever checked in to the an airline to uh, before your flight, like you do, uh, it usually wants to know the confirmation code and your last name or your frequent flyer number. Uh, and it turns out that when Krebs look into it, uh, the United site, if you have the frequent flyer number and usually the information that you can get off the rest of the boarding card, you can reset the password for the frequent flyer number and then log into the account and see all their future flights and cancel flights and purchase upgrades and all kinds of things. You know, it makes me just want to like find somebody I don't like, get the thing, go in there and just always make the change their seat right before they fly to some like really terrible seat at the back of the plane or something. 
Yeah, no kidding. Really evil. Yeah, that'd be great. Give up a really good seat to just make them sit at the back in one <laughs> of those seats that doesn't recline. <laughs> uh, for like a four-hour flight or something. Just like, ah. All right, Alan. So are you ready to yes, get amped? Uh, don't, don't just uh, throw those boarding passes somewhere. Yeah, be careful uh, with them. Like shred them. It's a good tip. So get amped right now, everybody. Go get your website amped. Google wants you to get amped. Don't per- no, it's not because we want one w- easy way to deliver ads when everybody's in- introducing ad blockers. No, no, it's because we want to speed up the web. We want to amp it up with an open source initiative. Amp tries to do something a little bit different, change the way the web is built, killing off technologies and advantaging others. In a world of controlled platforms and walled app gardens, the web is the last open space standing, built over two decades, and there's something irksome about a few Google engineers deciding to do with parts of it. <laughs> So if you're not totally following all of the adpocalypse stuff that's going on, iOS 9 rolled out a content blocker. Facebook rolled out a, a new way to consume news that doesn't have any ads, and so did Apple. And everybody estimates that Google's losing their S over this because display ads are going down and people are starting to block ads like crazy. And so why not come together with a great way to deliver content to mobile that has built-in mechanisms to support ads? And all coming from one domain, too. Very so the nice. interesting one there is how is Facebook making money? Because they were making money off ads. Their own ads, not Google ads. Right, but you just said Facebook was delivering news without ads. Yeah, they'll add ads to that thing. Come on. Right. That Or they're charging the news sites for the visitors. Oh, sure, that too, yeah. But, the but main- then the news site would have to have ads in order to, to pay Facebook. <laughs> Uh, Sundar Pichai was on stage the other day, and he said that this is a this is a problem that is that is threatening the entire industry and uh, one that could harm humanity if we don't solve it. And that is the ability to view ads online. So, well, it really comes down to somebody's got to pay for this stuff, or it's going to go away. Yeah, some of it could go uh, away, in my estimation. I'd be okay with that. Yeah, there's a lot there's of crap a lot online. Of really crap. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but AMP is a number of technologies rolled into one. The first and foremost is code subsetting. Uh, they have also. Uh, they also say they're going to load a bunch of other stuff in there. HTML is going to be the main language the web pages are built in. Includes some things that load quickly, other things that make it load slowly. They say, AMP aims to kill off the slow parts, most notably JavaScript. Wait, they're going to replace it with their compiled thing or whatever? I don't know. Whatever. I'm looking into it though. I'm, I'll tell or you. Or fragmentation, what. whatever. Uh, yeah, the other things that are also banned: iframes, embeds, objects, scripts. Iframes should go away. Yeah. Well, who's the biggest user of iframes on the web? YouTube embeds. It's an iframe. So it's kind of ironic. That's mostly just so that uh, YouTube could evolve the embedded video over time. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Uh, It's just funny that they're going to be blocking YouTube embeds with AMP. Yeah, well, they'll have other ways to embed YouTube, I suppose. Are you ready for uh, fully automated cars? Volvo is, and they're prepared to accept liability if a self-driving car gets in a crash. They're going to accept that full liability, just like Mercedes and Google also say they will, hoping to convince regulators that it's worthwhile to allow testing of such vehicles on public roads. Volvo CTO said, everybody is aware of the fact that these driverless technologies will never be perfect. One day there's going to be an accident, so the question becomes who's responsible, and we think it's unrealistic to put that responsibility on our, con- on our customers. This is limited to flaws in the self-driving system, of course. If the driver does something inappropriate or if another vehicle causes the accident, well, they're still liable. It's also questionable how the courts would treat a promise for liability, but presumably this can be cleared up with the agreements when customers start actually using the technology. Another article I read, the biggest challenge for self-driving cars is going to be that transition period where there's other humans on the road, and the self-driving cars will have to account for crazy humans (laughs) and not logical uh, computers. uh, Being... Uh, a giant group of technical people, we were having an interesting discussion about how 
robots had to be taught to get annoyed. Really? Yes. Uh, so there was one that was um, the Google self-driving car. Uh, I think the one that they were using for like street map or whatever. And it comes up to an intersection and stops because the red light. And then uh, a person on a bicycle comes up and uh, the opposite way as the light turns. Uh, and they're rather than you know sitting on the bike or with their feet on the ground or whatever, they're standing on the bike and on the pedals and they're kind of balancing and sliding back and forth a little bit as they wait at the red light. So the Google car goes to go and then sees the cyclist move forward. So the car stops. And then the cyclist moves back and doesn't. And so the car tries to start and then the cyclist moves forward and the car stops again. Because basically the Google car is purposely avoid. It's like, oh, that, that, that biker is about to cut me off. I'm going to stop. And, and the cyclist figured it out and it was just like psyching out the car every time the car tried to move. Right. <laughs> and there's like two Google engineers in the car like whacking away at their keyboards trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> Love it. But the car never got annoyed enough to right. just go. Yeah, right? which a person there would. Was, there was a talk about uh, these uh, robots they use in hospitals that just deliver medication or whatever. But, you know, they stop when someone hmm. butts in front of the robot and, and eventually, you know, they had to teach the robot to get annoyed. Otherwise, the robot would never get anywhere. So, you know, if, if, if the robot's got cut off too many times, it just starts beeping and then, like, shoves people out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> beep, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's some... So, yes, Volvo promising to accept liability is a lot different than, uh, you know, the court having a way to force them to pay. Yeah. I, I expect to see something like putting up a bond or something so that the, the mm. money is already there and available uh, and is used in the case of a problem. Interesting Rather than idea. just the company promising. Right. That and then having it. to go through the process of determining liability. Yeah. Or, you know, extracting the money and, and Volvo's like, well, when we promised that, we only meant in this case or something. Whereas right. You they didn't, put up main- the money, you the didn't maintain the it. proper tire pressure and that threw off the system. Therefore, it is user error, not our fault. Yeah. Whereas if the money is already available and then, you know, some the government decides that Volvo is at fault and it gets paid out mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I agree. So you want to do the story about uh, how this guy spent two weeks hunting a memory leak in Ruby? Yeah, uh, it's just an interesting story. I bet. It's yeah, long. But uh, I you got to figure this was this is probably one of those great great like throw to your Insta paper queue and read it when you're sitting down and yep yeah okay very good we'll leave it at that so uh, now let's talk about the OPM breach it's been a few weeks OPM says that 5.6 million fingerprints stolen in the cyber attack five times as many as previously thought boy this breach just keeps getting way way worse in fact I've heard some government officials just say you know what it's just straight up a generational problem now an entire generation of people have their identities compromised. Including their fingerprints. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yep. Five times more than the estimated 1.1 million government officials when the cyber attack was initially disclosed over the summer. Holy uh, smokes. Like, like we called, it's like, didn't know this is just going to keep getting worse. Mm, we did even say even though no additional attack has happened. Right. Every time they say, oh, right. it wasn't that bad, right. you know for a fact it's just slowly going to get worse. It does. It does. Worse. As the investigation it goes on. It gets worse. And they have to have a whole bunch of, oh, damn it, moments. Damn it. We still, damn it. Whereas why the right thing to do is say everything could have been taken. And then we're like, oh, we've now proven that this wasn't. Taken. Right. Yeah. yeah. Turns out that would actually probably make you look better. Being like, it turns out they didn't get this. They didn't get that. Our security system worked in this case. Yeah. Very true. All right. Are you ready to soak your brain organ? How elliptic curve cryptography encryption works. Wow. Now, there's a write-up to point people at, Alan. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, admittedly, I haven't had time to read. <laughs> He's got a diagram. <laughs> to, uh, to refresh my own uh, understanding of it. Yeah, but, that's a good one. Uh, 
yeah, it's on my queue to read, so I figured I would share that. So there you go. We'll have a link to that in the roundup, just like we'd like to do. All right, so we have a story coming in now about misusing Ethernet to kill mm-hmm. infrastructure dead. <laughs> what? Yes. So turns out if you want to kill a network, uh, <laughs> the best way is to uh, plug into a spare Ethernet port that's hanging around somewhere and uh, send it a little electricity it wasn't expecting. Oh. Sep. Uh, having had this happen at my house uh, by lightning, I can tell you it will break shit good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will, won't it? Yeah, that yeah, sucks so, uh, for you bad. He, he set this up at his house. Uh, he uh, got an old switch he had, an old laptop, and an old uh, network-attached hard drive and hooked them up over like you know five-meter cables, you know, regular-sized Ethernet cables into the switch, mm. then did a full 100-meter cable, which is the maximum length you're supposed to be uh, using for Ethernet, and hooked his death ray up to the switch. <laughs> and when he, he uh, ran it for two seconds, uh, the switch went... <laughs> and was, yeah. Uh, it died, and the hard drive wouldn't function anymore. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. We talk about all these advanced attacks, but <laughs> that's pretty basic. Yeah. If you've got physical uh, you know, access. Oftentimes you see, you know, if you go to some big company building or health... If, even at an airport, there's probably a spare Ethernet jack hanging around somewhere. Mm-hmm, Just mm-hmm. imagine the, ha- the havoc you could cause by walking up to that Ethernet jack and searching a couple Don't of switches. Don't give people ideas. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, all right. So 20 cognitive biases that are going to screw up your decisions. This is a, this is a, probably a, a, uh, a hard-to-read but very true infograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 of them. Anchoring bias mm-hmm. being number one. Yeah. I think number two is a good one there with the you know availability heuristic. Uh it's like, oh, smoking's not that bad. I know people that are like 100 years old and smoked their whole life. It's like, right. yeah, that doesn't mean it doesn't kill a lot of people. People overestimate the importance of information that is available to them. That's a good yeah. one. Or do uh, there's actually both. It's like overemphasize the importance of brand new information versus, or you could overemphasize only the older information and kind of dismiss newer information, mm-hmm. uh, which can cause you to make bad decisions either way. Confirmation or, you know, bias is a really common one. Yes. You only yeah, you only accept the new information if it agrees with what you already think, or you know the clustering illusion where people that's the one that gets gamblers all the time. Mm. It's like oh, it's come up red five times in a row. It's definitely not going to be red next time. What it's about like, well, 50, 50 what about uh, overconfidence? Uh, some of us are too confident about our abilities, and this causes us to take greater risks in our daily lives. I find those to be noobs. That's what I call noobs. <laughs> Actually, if you read that one, it says it specifically happens to experts and not noobs. I know people that think they're experts, and they. But I, in my experience, it turns out to be noobs are overconfident, and people that actually know what they're doing tend to be like, oh, geez, this again. I mean, it's like there's this fine line where somebody who, who says they know too much, I start to think they don't know enough. Yeah, or uh, what's been coming up a lot in the discussions I've been having is the pro-innovation bias. Oh. Everybody's so eager to switch to the latest, greatest new thing that they don't realize the shortcomings it has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, there's just some good ones, some good ones. And that's just a few of them, all on the list. You guys can go find them. I'll have a link in the show notes. I had to cover this next story, Alan, because it... First of all, it was an egregious breach, and second of all, uh, the recommendation is almost just laughable. So you probably heard that a lot of T-Mobile's uh, information, customers' information, got leaked. I mean, we're talking like a lot of stuff. 15 million people, uh, and I think it included like information like social security number, uh, birth dates, names, addresses, all that stuff, uh, and well, as well as T-Mobile's own credit assessment of the person which is kind of nasty. 
Well, yeah, so, so that's how Experian gets involved, right? Because uh, T-Mobile would go to Experian to get a credit report on a person. It was actually an Experian breach that breached ah. that that exposed all of T-Mobile's data. Yeah. Uh, See, that's what really sucks for T-Mobile is it wasn't their fault. Yeah. <laughs> Other than their fault for picking Experian, but right. being a, they're one of the credit agencies, you don't really have that much of a choice. So, uh, CEO, the the CEO of T-Mobile, um, who I think is a caricature of a person. Uh, has recommended everybody go sign up for Experian to protect their ID after this breach. And he puts a link right there in his post about this, linking to protectmyid.com, which is, as you can see by that big logo at the top of the page, an Experian company. Well, I'm sure Experian provided free credit monitoring for all the people whose data was breached by Experian. Two years of free credit monitoring. Ah, they doubled it up because they screwed up twice as hard as usual. Yes. I just, like, when I see this, it feels like such a slap in the face. Uh, uh, Just drives me crazy. All right. So there you go. And then, uh, last but not least, to hack an Android phone, just try typing in a really long password. Yep. So they got a video here, I think. Uh, Turns out that uh, at the unlock screen... Oh, yeah. uh, you do the right thing, you can get So he goes to emergency to a, dialer, and he just starts hitting the star key yep. over and over, and then he copies select it. select all of it, yep. paste, and then select all, and paste, and, and select paste, all, paste, 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 and paste, paste, exponentially paste. get more and more until you get a big enough chunk, and then buffer overflow, crash, bang, you're I, in. I can't believe nobody's tried this yet. That's hilarious. That's, that's ridiculously simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just crashes the lock screen app? Basically, yep. this is why you don't make the, the, the lock screen its own. I mean, don't make it an app somehow if you can avoid that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I've actually had the fingerprint scanning app on my Samsung crash, and then I couldn't unlock the phone. Which is better than if having it, cr- and then it, unlocks, it crash and yeah. give you the desktop. <laughs> in, that, in your case, you just like hold the power button yeah. and reboot it, right? Yeah, well, yes, I did. Although it took me a second because I'm like, crap, I, like, I, have to, I have to make a call like right now. It's kind of an emergency. And I'm like, uh, wait, I'll just reboot. But then the reboot process takes forever on that phone. But yeah. yeah, it can take a while. Yeah, so there you go. Basically yep. just doing copy and paste over and over again. And as you can see, he just crashed the app. And uh, then he gets access to the Android phone. Yep. Hmm. So does he say which version this affects? Um... It says Google's acknowledge the flaw. Uh, let somebody and view your yes, contact, you phone logs, SMS messages, and other data that's normally protected. If you have my phone, it's already patched. Oh, okay. So the Nexus device has already got the patch. Yep. Huh. That's kind of a funny one. Alan, any other links in the roundup that we missed, or is that everything? Uh, no. I just I uh, wanted to say a big thank you to all the people that I met out in Europe uh, who came up and said they were big fans of TechSnap and BSD Now. That was great, and uh, special thank you to one of the organizers who actually uh, took me aside to give me some fancy Swedish licorice and nice. have me autograph his uh, TechSnap 100 shirt. Oh, cool. And, uh, I know Dan, and I think one other person was there with the, uh, the newer TechSnap shirt, and there were a bunch of people that had their, uh, the new BSD Now shirts. Awesome. Uh, but it was especially interesting to hear a bunch of people come up and say, yeah, I was, I'm here because you told me about it. Uh, rather, and... Uh, I think EuroBSDCon set a record this year for the most, uh, the largest percent of people who it was their first time coming to EuroBSDCon. Wow, that's really cool. I had yeah. uh, I had a couple of meetups on the road trip and on the pizza meetup in Grand Forks. Uh, listener Reed, uh, who who had a TechSnap 100 shirt on, brought me the three Bs: uh, bacon, beer, and a bag because I brought the trailer and I didn't think about bringing any bags because all my stuff was packed in the trailer. And then I got to a hotel when I got to Grand Forks and didn't have any bags, so I had to carry everything in, like my laptop. Like, yeah, it's like, like how do I? <laughs> <laughs> I had to take like See, two trips. 
Yeah, just like uh, I'll make one trip with a bundle of underwear. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So we heard about that, and he, he he not only was he not only was he rocking the tech snap shirt, but he brought me a bag, beer, and bacon. So that was okay. really cool. All right. Well, if you'd like to contact the TechSnap program, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. If you might want to submit some content, stories, discussion pieces, or questions, subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com is the place to go. Join us live. We do the show on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Over jblive.tv and jblive.info, which will have the different audio streams, which is great for listening on the go or sitting at a desk where, you don't, where they don't want you to have a video stream. And don't forget, also, we have uh, RSS feeds as well. Mm-hmm. Also, randomly, apparently, uh, my talk from VBSDCon a couple weeks ago uh, has made it onto the front page of our sysadmin. Nice. And also, <laughs> it's in the TechSnap subreddit and like the Tech Talk Today subreddit, and it's, it's looked like making its rounds. It's, yeah. you know, it's a good title. It's a good yeah, title. That helps. Interesting things you didn't know you could do is ZFS. So a bunch of people at the conference said they were. Yeah. Uh, honestly, when I finished the talk, I thought it was kind of, I babbled on a little bit too much and that. Uh, there wasn't as much content as I wanted. Yeah. But apparently a lot of people didn't know you could do a bunch of the things I, I talked about. That's Whereas nice. I was like, oh, most people know about most of these, right? And yeah. I was like, I didn't have enough of the beefier stuff in there. Uh, it's like, mm-hmm. but, you you know. know, there's always more and more people trying out ZFS too. So Yeah. and uh, That might help. You know, well, if you want to find that, you can go to techsnap.reddit.com or like Alan was saying, it's admin subreddit and give it a vote too. That way other people can see it. Exactly. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.